There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for all the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. The word of the Lord. So we mentioned that we have our kids here today. Why would we do that, kids, apart from wanting to give your Sunday school teachers a well-deserved break? <laughs> Why would we have you here in our service this morning? Because we want you to know that you, I'm talking to all our kids now, you are part of the family of God now. You're part of God's family now. Not when you grow up, not when you become an adult, but even now, the people you sit amongst are your family, especially if you've already trusted Christ. And we want you to see what God's family does together. We sing together. We pray together. We open God's word together because we want you too to see that these things matter. This is what God has called us to do. So it's good for you to be in here from time to time, to be with us. Even though it's great to have classes where they teach right to your age level, it's good to be with God's people sometimes too. Even if you don't understand everything, that's okay. You're here in the place where God wants you to be with his people. Glad all of you are here again today. Welcome again as we uh, come into this time of Christmas season and uh, wrapping up this Isaiah series, which I have enjoyed. You know, most times when we head into the Christmas season, um, the chatter in the news cycle tends to die down. Not this weekend. <laughs> Usually it tends to go to something a little bit uh, simpler and calmer. You know, you get the best of 2018 lists that pop up in the news or uh, the best holiday gifts pop up or these heartwarming stories of generosity. Usually the national news quiets down the weekend of Christmas as politicians go home for the holidays. But as I said, not this year. Right up until this weekend, the news cycles have been churning with the looming government shutdown, 
you know, resigning cabinet members, budget, immigration, crisis, all these things. I don't know of another year where at Christmas time we see tension so tight that's just crying out for need for relief from a different kind of king and kingdom, regardless of what political side you're on. There's tension. I can't think of a recent year that points more at this time to the shortcomings of our own human efforts even now to bring justice, to bring peace and hope that a year like this that showcases our need for help from outside of ourselves this year. Well, that is what Christmas is about. That is what Advent is about We await a glorious new king we have been talking about and his kingdom and his rescue plan for the world, a saving from outside ourselves. But it didn't begin looking very glorious or very hopeful, though. In fact, it began very small and very humble. A lot of the stories we love are rags-to-riches stories, those stories when somebody begins in poverty and they work hard and they, and they exceed and they excel and get rags-to-riches. Well, this morning we have a, 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 a story of humble to glory. This Sunday we scan really the entirety of God's saving plan in the image of a lopped-off tree, a felled tree, a cut-down tree that blooms again to cover the entire earth, the whole earth, with God's reigning peace and perfect rule. This morning, we're going to look at four branches, we're calling them, of this new kingdom, this new growth, this new tree, four branches we're going to look at. So hopefully you've got your scripture open to Isaiah 11. As we jump in today, we're going to look at these four branches and unpack this passage again as we look at Christmas through the eyes of Isaiah. Remember, it's a book that prophesies and pointing us forward to all these prophecies about a servant, a Messiah who would come. Well, here's our first branch this morning we're going to look at. The humble branch blooms into a kingdom with new fruit and purpose. The humble branch blooms into a kingdom with new fruit and purpose we're going to see. The image here, as I said, it's a really humble image. Not what you would expect of a kingdom, of a universal kingdom, of an eternal kingdom. It's not what you would expect. What could be more humbling than a felled tree? Here, verse 1 again of chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump. There it is the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The picture there is graphic image for us, a once mighty, a once strong, a once healthy, flourishing tree that had strong arms and bared great fruit, a tree that would give shade and protection for those who sought refuge there has now been cut down lopped off, and what's left is a stump. You can drive out uh, into the the countryside here. You can see those tree farms where the once were there and now they're gone, um, sitting in our homes. Uh, But you get the idea. You get the idea. This giant tree is gone. It's glory. It's shade. It's protection. It's fruit. 
Now a stump is left. And I'm sure God's people, as we've been going through this book of Isaiah, the context of the nation of Assyria coming to invade them, I'm sure God's people felt this way. A once mighty kingdom was being absolutely overrun by enemies. They were seeing it fall and, and, and come unraveled. They could relate to this, this image. What's happened, they probably thought. What's happened to our authority? What's happened to our position, our might, our power and influence we had over this region? Their kingdom. They might even thought, where is God? Where is he? Look what's happening. The mighty is falling down. They probably reminisced and thought, do you remember the glory days? How many of us do that? The glory days. There's songs, I think, written, glory days, right? You think back to the good times, the times that were great, the times where you felt alive and strong and secure. Where are those glory days? They're gone. Oh, remember King David? Oh, King David, the stories, the stories of King David, they probably thought, if we could only get back there. We do that, don't we? If we could only get back to that time. The promise he had, those great mighty glory days. Well, they certainly thought of King David. Isaiah called it in this passage, the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Do we know? It's David's father. King David's father's name was Jesse, and Isaiah mentions him in this passage. He calls it the stump of Jesse. And remember, the last couple weeks we've been talking about this forever covenant that God made with David. The covenant is an agreement between two parties, right, with, some, uh, with, a, with a common goal in mind and stipulations to the covenant. Here's what he said in the covenant from 2 Samuel again. We'll see it one more time. When your days are fulfilled, this is the covenant to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up for you offspring after you who shall come from your body, so from your family, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name which was his son Solomon, but I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever now. I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, of course, fulfilled partly in Solomon. He did build a temple, but Solomon died too. His kingdom disappeared. And so did God's people even. As Assyria and then later we know Babylon came in and, and took them away. And now just a stump. A reminder that something great once stood there. A kingdom and a great king. How humbling for God's people. How humbling for them. That he would allow them to go through this time. But something great would come out of that, Isaiah promises. Something great would come from the ashes. It means for us too. If you come from humble beginnings, you're in good company. You're in good company with Jesus. Maybe you don't come from a background that you, came, you didn't have much money growing up. Or your family didn't have a great name. Or you look at your life and you go, what, what have I accomplished? The gospel in Jesus Christ himself comes from humble beginnings too. You are in great company this morning. In fact, the entire Christmas story rings of humility. Jesus, the king of the earth, born into a stable. Jesus, the king of the earth, laid down in a feeding trough where dirty animals put their dirty mouths, right? Jesus, the king of the earth, born to an obscure family that nobody knows or cares about. That's the Christmas story. 
It's a story of humility. This was a message of hope for God's people, Isaiah is recording. It's a message for hope in times of trouble, but it's an undated message. It's for them, yes, it was for them, but it's also for, it was for the future of, the, of God's people. It's for us today. It's an undated message. It's for future, future generations as well after us. But that's the best kind of hope, isn't it? An undated hope, an ever-present reality, a living, ever-present hope that something or someone is coming. Hope is coming. Something is going to come from that stump. It's one of the wonders of, of Oregon, having been here a couple springs now, when winter takes away some of the vitality of our local uh, growth, beauty, flowers, plants, and they die at the end of a season. We see that happen when winter comes. But what's hidden inside those roots? What's hidden there? Life. A, a, a hidden vitality, you might say. It's still there. It's still there. And then spring comes and pow, right? Everything just comes back. And it comes to life and it blooms and I'm sneezing. It comes back to life. Winter comes and spring comes after. The stump blooms. Life comes back. But it starts small, doesn't it? Start small, a little shoot here, a little bud there, a little leaf there. Isaiah repeats this idea of a, of a, a stump or a shoot coming from the stump on a later passage where he's clearly speaking of a suffering servant, Jesus, that would come. Here's that verse, Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant. He's not letting this idea go. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There it is. From the stump comes something or someone. But as he grows, he starts humble. But as he grows, he begins to bear fruit. And we've been talking about Jesus in our Gospel of Mark series. He begins to grow. He begins to minister. He grows in wisdom. He grows in stature. He grows in favor in the works that he does and the teachings that he spreads on the earth. And finally, the fruit of his death and resurrection. And God has a special plan for this new branch. What starts absolutely humble what starts with no beauty that we should desire him becomes a blooming kingdom. A glorious and uh, an everlasting kingdom. A new David is what Isaiah is saying. A new David will come is what Isaiah is saying and build an eternal kingdom. Look at verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This branch, this one that was going to come from the stump, would have a special anointing. Like many times God's people did, even in the Old Testament, being filled by the Spirit for a special anointing, as the Spirit has always done for those called by God for a special task. Kind of like they would, in the Old Testament, they did this strange thing. They would pour oil over the head of someone they were anointing, king. It would run over their head and down, even probably over their face and drip off their beard. They would anoint them for this special job of being king. Well, here Isaiah says, 
Here Isaiah says, this one will be anointed by the Spirit. And even says it in, a, in, in, a, in seven ways. It's kind of interesting. A sevenfold anointing representing that number kind of perfection as it does in the Bible. He's comprehensively the man for the job, Isaiah is saying. He's anointed sevenfold in a way that nobody ever has been. With all these things, wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, and yet born in a manger. And we see this anointing. We saw it in the Gospel of Mark at his baptism. Do you remember way back now, probably four or five months ago, we remember, we're quoting from Matthew, but we saw it in Mark 2. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is his anointing. This is his commissioning. This is God himself saying, here's the shoot from the stump. Here's the one perfectly commissioned for this like no one else to bring a kingdom like no other. When you think of our earthly leaders, those who are maybe the most gifted, the most powerful, and I hear think it's a sevenfold gifting Isaiah records. It's to represent perfection. Our most gifted, powerful leaders, how do they usually handle that? How do they usually handle that, those situations and opportunities? Not, not very well. What happens to most of our earthly leaders? They become ah, intoxicated, don't they? With their own greatness, with their own accomplishments, with their own giftings. How many stories do we have of leader after leader falling in pride because they were intoxicated on their own greatness? It happens all the time. Not this branch. Not this branch. What does he say in verse 3? His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This king, if anyone ever could have boasted, if anyone ever had the credentials and the authority to, to wave them around, it was this king. And we see right there after this great anointing, he fears the Lord. He humbly fears the Lord, humbly knows God the Father, and humbly submits to him. But the strange thing about the gospel, the strange thing is it's in his humility that his greatness comes. It's in his humility that his greatness comes. He humbly submits, doesn't he? He obeys even to death on a cross. And this is what the fear of the Lord does. It's not a fear of being afraid of like our kids in here. Who's ever afraid of the dark? It's not a fear of like being terrorized of something or a monster under the bed. It's not that kind of fear. It's a fear of honor, of respect, of reverence. It's a clear-sighted understanding of reality that there's a maker and you and I are accountable to him. That's the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. And in loving relation to him through Christ, when we fear the Lord, we begin to love what he loves. We begin to value what he values. We begin to cherish what he cherishes. We begin to see the world through his eyes and his heart with his desires, but with his power too to live that way. That's the fear of the Lord. 
we desire, we begin to desire a different kingdom, you might say, a kingdom of righteousness. So it shouldn't be surprising when we see this king of love come and judge in righteousness. Here's our second branch. The righteous branch will judge all things and people perfectly. We were talking in our men's group this last week. We are reading a book by J.I. Packer uh, on the attributes of God, and, and we're coming to Christmas, and the week before Christmas is on the judgment of God, and when we gather in January, the week after, it's on the wrath of God. So we're kind of like, this is interesting timing, and they said, did you plan this? Like, I did not, but that's just the way it falls, but here in this passage today, too, we see that this righteous branch will judge all things and people perfectly. Look at verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Just in November this year, a, a trial was begun in Germany. A trial for a 94-year-old now 94-year-old man, uh, Johann Rebogen, I think is his name, for his alleged participation uh, in Nazi war crimes. Uh, a trial began this last November where he's going to be judged in a, in a juvenile court now because he was uh, underage when these crimes were committed or allegedly committed that he assisted in the death of hundreds of the 60,000 that died at the Stutthof concentration camp. His trial began in November. Now, apart from the obvious moral dilemmas of trying a 94-year-old man for crimes he committed possibly at a, as a youth at 15 or 16, these German courts are seeking justice decades later. Justice for real acts done. But because, as I said, he was a youth, he'll be tried in a youth court. So he sits there as a 94-year-old man being tried for these heinous crimes, and the maximum penalty he can receive is 10 years. He probably won't live past that anyways, but you get the context if he was responsible for hundreds of deaths, and yet he's only going to be able to be held accountable with 10 years. It really does. It stretches our moral imagination. It stretches our mind to think in those terms but as Christians, as those who follow God, as those who love God, as those who fear God, we should love justice. We should want to see the world be put right. We should love those things. And realize, as one commentator said this week on that story, there's no expiration date on justice. Even for a 94-year-old man. But here's the thing. Even our best attempts at justice in this world, in our court systems, in our family, in our lives, is ever only approximate justice. It's only approximate. It's never perfect justice. You know, he may only receive 10 years, but none of the victims are ever coming back. That would be just. We only ever get to approximate justice in this world. And humanity, we seek justice, don't we? We know when things are off. We know when it's not right. We live, because I think we live in this world that is haunted by God, whether we realize it or not. And so people want justice, whether they know God or not. 
because we serve a God of justice. But someday, Isaiah says, someday the perfect, the perfect judge will come and he'll make all things right. No more crime, no more evil. Evil will be undone when the perfect judge comes. Because as Isaiah says, he doesn't judge with his five senses. That's why. He mentions his eyes. He mentions the ears. That's how human judges can judge. That's why we only ever have approximate justice. All they have to go on is their five senses and what they can ascertain in a trial, in a courtroom. He doesn't judge that way. His index will be your heart. His index will be my heart, our hearts. He judges by looking into our hearts. He knows perfectly this perfect judge. And in perfection and in faithfulness, he will judge all humanity. Matthew says this in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Here's that kingdom idea. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from a goat. And when he does, it's only those who are found in, who have believed in and upon Jesus Christ for saving, forgiven by his grace and mercy, it is those who will enter into this new kingdom, this just kingdom, this perfect kingdom that Isaiah talks about. It is those. I want to be judged by the index of the Son of God's heart. Don't you? I want to be judged by the index of of, of his heart, of his goodness, of his righteousness, of his perfection. And we can be when we trust him. But I know as we even think about Christmas and I think about this message and we, we even read that chapter in our men's group this week, the idea of God's judgment can be so troubling for us as humans. It's very troubling. Many objections have been heard. I don't believe in a God of judgment. I believe in a God of love. J.I. Packer, from that book that our men's group are, are, are reading, helps us out with this. He says, why then do we fight shy of the thought of God as a judge? Why do we feel the thought unworthy of him? The truth is that of God's moral, uh, the truth is that part of God's moral perfection is his perfection in judgment. Would a God who did not care about the differences between right and wrong be a good, admirable being? Admirable being? Moral indifference in God would not be an imperfection uh, in God. It would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection, he says. In other words, if we had a God who said, I don't really care what they do. I made them. I could care less. Let them go and live and, and, and blow up that world for all I care. And he was totally indifferent. Would that be loving? That wouldn't be loving either. He cares. He's just. He wants righteousness. It was a belt that he wears, Isaiah says. It's out front. He leads with it. You see, Christmas makes, and Christmas makes no sense without this truth. It makes absolutely no sense without this truth. God has to stay true to his righteous character, so he sends Jesus to earth to pay for your sin so he can stay just and forgive you at the same time. That's the gospel. That's the Christmas message. It doesn't make sense apart from that. 
the glorious inbreaking of his kingdom of grace. That is Christmas. And it doesn't make sense apart from that. It's sentimental. It's cute. It's a nice story to think of a family born with a baby and they took care of it and no place to put it and they took care of the baby. But it doesn't make sense apart from the cosmic ramifications of our life in this world. It doesn't make sense. And, it, and we better believe this kingdom will be different than what we see today. I hope so, right? It better be. <laughs> it better be. And if you love the king, your heart will have a desire to return to that better kingdom. Return to that better kingdom. A better home than even the garden Adam and Eve had, Isaiah is going to tell us. A better home than even the garden that Adam and Eve had. It's our third branch. The new branch becomes a new garden with renewed peace. This third branch, the new branch becomes the new kingdom, becomes a new garden with a renewed, renewed peace. It's in verses 6 through 9, Isaiah gives us this picture now, graphic imagery, this picture of the new kingdom that the new king is going to usher in and bring to us. It's a picture of a transformed kingdom because of God's love of goodness, his love of righteousness, he transforms the world and ushers in a new kingdom. A kingdom where the norms that we see today of destruction, of prey and predator are replaced by perfect peace with this really powerful imagery. And connecting this powerful imagery to Isaiah 9 is going to help us understand this Isaiah's picture here. I want you to picture here, I've got something coming up for us on the screen here. Picture two funnels now. Two funnels that have been placed with the smaller sides together. As we kind of see there, can you see that? In Isaiah 9, which we talked about last week, remember he talks about the light has dawned on this land. The light has come. We think big light coming down. Isaiah said in this passage, here it is. We'll go back to this image in a minute. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. The light has shone on the earth in that passage. And the explanation, as we go back to that image now, the explanation is a baby in that passage. So Isaiah 9 takes us from this big picture of light and he fo focuses it down into a focal point, a baby. Jesus, the Savior of the world. And now we get to Isaiah 11 now, verses 6 through 9, and from that baby now comes out, spreads out from that focal point, peace. Worldwide peace. A transformation of everything. So from a dawning era of light and truth embodied into a baby that came to earth at Christmas, now the mission is to spread it out over the world like a, two funnels. A worldwide transformation of human flourishing. I was talking with Kara Kanegi in our recent um, Covenant membership class. And if you know Kara and you know her family, uh, they care for sheep. Uh, and they uh, take care of them, raise them, and she does and cares for them. And she told this incredible story in our class. We were talking about sheep and shepherds. and It was uh, one late summer night, and she went out. Uh, it was sometime back. She said she went out to her pasture area, and her, her flock was out there. And it was dark. And she went out, to, I think, to bring the sheep in probably. It was getting dark. And she called the sheep over to her, and as a good shepherd does, and, and as you, if you've Taking care of sheep, as some of our people have, they know your voice. 
They come right to you. In fact, they would come out of two different flocks that were scattered together. They would come to the shepherd's voice. And they came over to her. She called them over. And as they all ran over, three of them were just being stubborn sheep. (laughs) They stayed over on the other side of the, the pasture there. And she had her sheep there, and those stubborn three. And so she called those three over. Just, come on, come on, you know, whatever, whatever she says to get her sheep to come. <laughs> they, she called them over to her, the three sheep who were over there. Uh, and she's like, why aren't they coming? So she turns around and looks back at her sheep there. And she sees the three silhouettes out there of those sheep. She looks back at hers, and uh, she turns back to count them. And when she counts them, she realizes they're all here behind me. What were those three figures she was calling into her flock? Three coyotes. (laughs) She had been calling them back into the fold. Come on, guys, come on in. Now, we know we would never do that because that's not the way the world works, is it? Predator and prey. It's the world we live in right now. But under the new government... In this new kingdom, it works exactly this way. Did you see it there? The lamb actually calls the wolf into fellowship. The lamb says, come in to the wolf. Did you see that there? Wolf and lamb, leopard and goat, lion and calf, they're all together now. All the old hostilities are gone in this new kingdom. That's what Isaiah is saying. The predator prey, the world of domination and maybe injustice in our world, it's gone in this new kingdom. Absolutely vanquished. The sheep now welcomes the wolf in. How upside down is that for our world? Verse 7, the cow and the bear, they now eat together. What's that about? Cow and bear don't eat the same kind of food. Well, they do in this new kingdom. They're now both herbivores. (laughs) which I think Isaiah is pointing us to a return to a garden, a return to a time when there's no death, no meat eaters. That's a bummer. (laughs) But the picture's there for us. He's wanting us to see we're returning to a time of no death. That's good, isn't it? A time of no death, which points to a return to a garden, a return to a time before death entered our world. That's what Isaiah is saying. Now, whether this is a literal millennium kingdom, which some will discuss, and, or the eternal uh, new heaven and earth, kind of outside the scope of what we can accomplish today, regardless of that, peace will most surely be fulfilled in Christ's future kingdom. Peace will be fulfilled. That's what Isaiah is saying. But the image I love most out of these few verses before we get to our last branch is this one. I love the image... Who would let their kids in here? And your kids are in here today. Would your mom and dad let you play with snakes? Poisonous snakes now. A cobra? A viper? Would your parents ever let you play with a cobra? Good. Thank you. You're right. They would not. They wouldn't. They wouldn't let you do that. They love you. They care for you. They know in this world right now, that's a bad idea. That's really dangerous. You've seen those videos. It happens from time to time. Uh, At zoos, someone goes to a place or into a cage they're not supposed to fall into. You've seen those. They get released from time to time. 
And we all cringe until they get out, or sometimes the gorilla does something amazing and cares for the little child. You've seen those videos. It happens from time to time. We cringe because we know this is not the way the world works. Kids don't go in the zoo cages. Kids don't get to play with cobras and snakes. It's brutal out there. It's a hostile world. The elements and and predators. And so we cringe when that happens. And some of you are experiencing that more than ever during the holidays this year. The brutality of life in a fallen planet. Of just being alive in a world that's fallen. I know that. And sometimes for some of you, I know the holidays, everybody's so joyful and happy and you just want to go like, stop it! (laughs) Because you're not feeling it. But here we see the child and the snake playing together. And I think we're meant to see, I think we're meant to see here Jesus Christ removing the curse. Do you remember back in Genesis when God's cursing Satan, who was in the form of what? Snake. Look what he said to him. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, though, now in this new kingdom, the child goes and sticks his hand right in the cobra den, and he's fine. She's fine. Jesus has come to undo the curse, Isaiah is saying. This new kingdom, the curse is gone. Death is gone. The enemy's gone. That's why he came to earth, to bring us back to a new garden, a new peace, and and undo the curse of this world. I mean, won't that be extraordinary? I hope that's a kingdom you're waiting for. No pain, no death. No injustice, no sorrow, no sadness, peace on earth, peace between everyone. But that kingdom's also breaking into the here and now. It's not just future. If you've trusted Christ, you're a citizen of that kingdom now, today. But don't our interactions sometimes look too much like predator and prey? If we're honest with ourselves... As a dad, you go rushing down the hallway and when the kids have just uh, made too much noise for the umpteenth time when they're supposed to be in bed, and you're going down the hallway, I'm going to give them some of my wisdom, you know. I'm going to bring them peace. <laughs> or when you're unable to forgive and we hold on to a grudge. I just, I can't let it go. We, 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 we track in that sometimes. We live in that sometimes. Predator and prey. Rather than giving, even in discipline as fathers, pointing them to the gospel and their need of a savior and the sin of their hearts. We take it personally. It's against me. No, it's against God. When you look down on others for their humble beginnings, their lack of intelligence maybe, their poverty, their race, all those things, they're all antithetical to Jesus' kingdom of peace and justice. Here's the antidote. Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. That's the antidote. A knowing of the Lord. We will know him so fully in that new kingdom. We will know him perfectly. We will know him fully and fear him truly. It's knowing and trusting the gospel. The knowledge of the Lord. 
When you know that it was good enough for Jesus to humble himself by coming from a stump, only to live and die and rise again for you, how can we dominate in power? How can that be our primary motive? Power or prey and predator with those we live with. We should serve in love and truth and grace and mercy and forgiveness because that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Isaiah is about. We embrace the gospel of peace with God, and what do we do? We spread out until he comes. It's our fourth branch. It's the funnel now spreading out. The spreading branch covers the earth and gathers the humble to their home. My kids were playing with a magnet this week, a strong one, sticking to everything. A great magnet we're meant to think of here, like a great magnet that pulls and draws now from the humble rejection to now all the nations, Isaiah says, being drawn to inquire of this king. It's such a flip, isn't it? Do, do, do all our nations and kingdoms and leaders now inquire of Jesus for how to, to govern? Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, David. No, they do not. In this kingdom, they will. All, all leaders will come to him. They'll be drawn to him, Isaiah says. What do we, what do, we do now? What do we say now? We don't know the answer to something and we need to look it up. What do we say? What, we'll just, oh, that's so, that's scary, isn't it? We just know we're going to, Google it. Google it. This just means it's become a, a, a verb. Look it up, it means, on the internet. Well, now all nations to come to Jesus to inquire, to get info, to, to find out true meaning in life. He who was the humble shoot from the stump of Jesse is also the root of Jesse. Look at verses 10 and 11. How's that possible? In that day, verse 10, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet in a second time to recover the remnant. This is people coming in that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, Elam, Shinar, uh, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. It's strange. A root from the, or a, a stump, excuse me, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, but also the root of Jesse. How is that possible? It means not only he comes from Jesse, but Jesse sprang from him. It means the glorious king actually is writing his own family tree. If he's coming from the stump, but he's also the root of that family too, he's writing his own family tree. And he's still gathering the family tree. But here's the key. You have to acknowledge this baby is king. So a question to ask yourself this Christmas, are you in this family tree? Are you in this family? Are you one of the branches? It's a humble story, but it's going to end very glorious. You have to humble yourself. You have to acknowledge that you need a Savior too. And if you're a Christian today, maybe we, we need the doses of humility too, don't we? We fall back into predator prey pretty quickly so that we can forgive and love as Jesus did and find joy again this Christmas. Humble yourself under the gospel in repentance today. Ann Voskamp tells the story of her trip to visit the Church of Nativity in a recent blog post she wrote. She's a writer and author who has written a lot of great books. 
She writes the story of her trip uh, to visit this church of nativity in Bethlehem. They, they say marks the spot in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. A lot of pilgrims go there. A lot of people like to visit the Holy Land. How many have been to the Holy Land? Okay, a few of us, a handful. She tells that story there, and she's outside this church of the nativity, it's called, and it was nighttime, and she's looking up at the sky in Bethlehem at all the stars. How great, huh? What an experience that would be. She's looking up, and she turned around to look at the doorway of the church of the nativity, and she realized how small the door is. You have to duck down. You have to bow down to get in. And she tells the story like this. What a picture of humility. Here's her story, what she says. And then I finally turned and bent low to walk into the church of the nativity because there's no finding hope until you humble yourself to believe. Our guide, that was our tour guide, says the door is impossibly low so that pilgrims couldn't ride their steeds, their camels, their donkeys straight into the church. She went on to say, no one gets to meet God lest they get off their high horse. <laughs> get down off whatever other hopes and laurels they're riding high on, counting on. The doorway to God is made only for those who make themselves small and choose God as all in all. That is Christmas right there. That low door, that low door like that to humble yourself. So here's my question. Have you humbled yourself? Or have you been humbled maybe by God to see that the stump began with the humble birth of a baby? A baby now. We got a picture coming up. There it is, baby feet. That's how it began. That's how this kingdom began. But the stump became a shoot from that root which will grow and become a peaceful, glorious kingdom. And it begins here. This is Christmas. Let's pray.